wealth for me is a measure of time. Financial freedom for me is defined as having enough passive income sources that supersede your monthly expenses. I have this theory handy called the 10-year freedom plan. And the idea is that everyone could be financially free within 10 years if they follow this. Welcome to Personal Finance Cat, where I share my personal take on personal finance. Hello, Adam. Welcome to the show. How are you? I'm great, Handy. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. Well, thank you for the opportunity, too. I I, um, I consider myself an educator, Handy. So I've been a speaker on college campuses and at association meetings and trade groups for the past 20 years. Um, in like 15 years time, I spoke on 750 college campuses wow. and really found that colleges in general, I'm going to speak with a very broad brush here, but um, colleges in general are teaching us to be employable, but not necessarily to be successful. And it really frustrated me. So I, I wanted to go out and teach people principles of success that I had learned over time. Um, as a friend of mine says, I had like 10 or 15 years of scar tissue of trying to figure it out. And so uh, I'm an educator in, in the greatest sense of the word. I just like to help people be successful. That's awesome. And I see on your hoodie there, it says the shred method. Yes, the shred method. You with that? <laughs> Absolutely. So this was a business that um, actually my wife and I were introduced to years ago. And we were, we were, um, we had just bought our dream home. And it just so happened that I was in the mortgage business, but I was getting out of the mortgage business to go back to speaking full time. And as a result, in buying this home, the mortgage lender uh, couldn't ver verify my income. And so we couldn't close on time, but we had already moved into the home and we're doing a rent back situation. And I remember my wife was lying in bed next to me crying. And she was saying, they're going to kick us out of this house, Adam. They won't let us stay. We're going to have to leave. You know, we just moved in. And her father graciously stepped in and signed, co-signed on the loan. And we ended up closing on the deal. But my name was not on the, the mortgage itself, which was like an ego blow for me, for sure. And about a year later, someone introduced the shred method to me. It wasn't named that. We actually acquired the company and renamed, rebranded it. Um, but we followed the method and within about three and a half years, my wife and I had paid off our mortgage entirely. And so, you know, now the shred method works with individuals who are looking to create more equity and more freedom in their life. And then also be able to invest in more real estate deals on the back end or syndications or intellectual property plays or whatever they choose to. Um, but we're teaching people a little bit different method of cash flow using the shred method. That's awesome. So do you yeah. say that you were able to pay off the mortgage in three years? Yeah, three and, and a half years. Wow. That's great. Yeah. And, and not on crazy income. We were just, we figured out how to, to, I like to call it gaming the banking system against itself. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, our, our two greatest expenses in life are taxes and the interest expense on debt. And we, we never really question the interest expense on debt. We pay it. And we go, yeah, I've been, I've living in my home for four years and I made the monthly mortgage payment, maybe made a little extra, but we don't really take a close look at how much that interest actually costs. Mm -hmm. And so through the shred method, we take advantage of that. Yeah. Let's definitely talk about that. I think you mentioned that it's possible for anyone to do that, right? To pay off yeah. the mortgage in three to five years. And how is that possible? Can you 
explain a little bit in detail? Yeah. So, you know, there's a qualifier to this that when I say it's possible for anyone to do it, you do have to have more money at the end of your month, right? So you can't have more month at the end of your money. That does not work. Uh, that's how people get deeper and deeper into debt. But if you have extra, the key to the shred method working is where does that extra go? And, you know, for, for most people handy, money goes into their checking account. It dribbles out little by little or, you know, big chunks by big chunks, depending on when they're paying their bills. But inevitably, for a majority of folks out there, there's some amount of money that's sitting in a checking account for an extended period of time, days, weeks, sometimes months on end. And it's very, very inefficient. So the metaphor I like to use is if you were to leave your home in the morning to go to the post office and you came back home knowing that you had to go to the grocery store later in the day, would you leave your car idling in the driveway all day? No. You wouldn't. Why not? Because it's burning gas. Yeah. Yeah. It's burning gas. It's hard on the engine, hard on the environment. Somebody might steal your car. You know, there's all sorts of reasons you wouldn't do it. And yet what we do, uh, what most of us do as consumers is money goes into checking and then we park it there and it's idle for a period of time, days, weeks, months on end. And so the shred method takes that, uh, those numbers and then applies a complex algorithm to it that just says, based on how much you have coming in and how much you have going out, how long it's going to sit there, what you have access to, we're going to send that lump sum to begin blasting away debt. And eventually we get to the mortgage. Um, sometimes it's to completely eradicate the mortgage. We want to be completely debt-free. And then there are some people that will say, that's dumb. It's the cheapest money I'll ever have. Why would I do that? And we tell them, okay, we don't maybe want to pay it all off. Let's get to a point where the majority of your payment is going to principal. So that way you own more of your income. It's actually eliminating debt and building wealth. And then let's take the equity that you have in that property and figure out how to redeploy it certain places, you know, maybe in bite-sized chunks, but we're going to de deploy it into cash flow producing assets like real estate and syndications. Do you also teach people how to invest in real estate? Because it's a very good um, investment vehicle. I'm a real estate investor myself, but yeah. it did take me a while to kind of get in the game and feel comfortable. So totally. do you have, I guess, courses or speeches that teach people how to get in the real estate game? You know, I, I wouldn't say that I have courses on that per se. Um, we direct a lot of people to places like Bigger Pockets, and there's tons of communities that are super focused on real estate. I would say for us, we're really preparing people and readying them for investing in real estate and other deals like that. So I have this theory, Andy, called the 10-year freedom plan. And the idea is that everyone could be financially free within 10 years if they follow this. 10 years may seem like a long time, but really a decade will pass and you know we'll look back and go, oh, wow, that was fast. So the first year, we call it 12 to 24 months, is using Shred, where you're eliminating debt, you're building equity, and you're creating that platform from which to invest, you know, invest with. The next, call it 24 months to maybe 48 months, in the midst of that, we're building a bank of money. And that could either be in equity or it could be in um, a product called infinite banking, uh, which is more of a process than a product, but it's using overfunded cash value life insurance to build a bank of money that then becomes the funds you use to invest with. 
And then the, the last step is investing for massive, passive, permanent streams of income, usually real estate. Um, but as I mentioned, I like syndications a lot because I was an active landlord for a, a number of years. And then uh, I, I, I basically divested of all my real estate in 2018. I thought it was at the top of the market. Little did I know I was like three years ahead of time. Um, but um, I realized the power of syndications that when you put, you're able to put 50 or $100,000 in something, you know, the, the level of return is actually pretty great and you're not dealing with all the tenant type issues. Um, as well, you get the tax benefits and bonus depreciation and all of that. So um, that was a very long answer to a short question. I still love real estate. Mm -hmm. It's central to what we do. It's the third step in our process. Yeah, no, that's that's great. So are you a syndicator yourself or you just invest passively with other syndicators? I invest passively with other syndicators right now. Mm -hmm. um, we're at a point in the business where we're starting to entertain that idea of becoming a syndicator. Mm -hmm. um, there's a number of developers in my area that will take investments. And, um, and, and it's, I mean, we're, I'm in Des Moines, Iowa, which doesn't seem like a high growth place, but there's a ton of development going on. There's probably $2 trillion worth of construction going on in our area right now. Wow. And, you know, a lot of, in addition to multifamily, there's a lot of like assisted living facilities and we have a lot of old people in the state of Iowa. So the assisted living facilities get filled up quite quickly. So those are the kinds of investments we're looking at now in terms of long-term, uh, you know, either before they're stabilized or once they're stabilized, what kind of return are we looking at? Um, right now, I'm getting lots of experience as a, a passive investor in syndications. Okay, got it. So for the listeners who are not familiar, can you talk about what a syndication deal is and how can people get in those deals? Yeah, I would love to. Um, I was brand new to this world uh, until about three or four years ago. And I didn't, you know, I knew, I knew that if you were investing a higher amount, you know, if you're willing to invest 20 or 50 or a hundred thousand dollars in something, um, the, the risk is different and the returns are generally different. Right. And so I was introduced to this idea of a syndication, <clears throat> which essentially allows you to join a group of investors as a limited partner and own a piece of a business that would own, as an example, a 350-unit apartment complex in Houston, Texas, or in somewhere in South Carolina. And the group that I do a lot of work with, they tend to invest in Sunbelt states. So they're investing in Texas and Florida and South Carolina and Arizona. Um, they're buying Class A properties. So these are Class A or Class B. These are nice, you know, relatively new construction type apartment buildings but they know that they can do a little bit of improvement in the, the apartment complex, increase rents, and then turn around and exit the property in three to five years because uh, the property is worth more just due to the rents. So in getting into these syndications, again, it's typically gonna be a 25 or $50,000 minimum. Um, some of them, if you go 100 or 250 or 500 or a million, it changes what your investment return looks like um, but it's been just awesome, uh, to, to watch the process roll out and we dipped our toe in the water at 25 or 50 and then slowly, um, you know, started going deeper. Um, but they're, they're, um, from a risk perspective, 
I have said there's a difference between being risky and taking a calculated risk. And when you find the right syndicator, it's definitely taking a, a calculated risk. Can you kind of talk about the returns that typically are available from these deals? I know that the real estate market, especially multifamily, is getting really heated. Yeah. You said at the beginning, right? You thought 2018 was the peak for then three years, yes. later, four years later. Are, are we still seeing like decent returns investing in multifamily? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, you know, the, I mean, right off the bat, off the top of my head, there was a deal that we were looking at the other day that if you put in, if you were a class A investor, so you put in $100,000, they had a guaranteed 9% return. Um, and that was paid monthly. So, you know, this is where someone who has some money sitting on the sidelines, if they want to invest it and know that they're getting passive income from it, that would be a way to do that. Um, if you are a class B share investor and you put in 50,000, the return was a little bit less. It was 8%, but you would also get a share of the back end. So when the property sells in three to five years, you would get some share of that as well. And it ended up being, I think the number on it handy was your multiple would be like a 1.8 or 1.9 times of what you put in. So if you put in 50,000 on the high end, you might walk away with 95,000 over the course of four or five years. Right. So these are returns. Um, there's another investment that was introduced to me about three years ago, and we're, we're nearing the exit point of it. And it's less of a syndication and more of a lender, more of like a hard money lending situation. Um, but the deal was we put 140,000 in, it pays seven, $750 a month, uh, month in, month out for the course of 36 months. And then we get a share of the profit on the sale of the house at the end of three years. So in effect, we turned 140 into 200,000 in three years time. And that would be, a, you know, it's about a 14% return per year. So when I'm, when I'm looking at these deals, you know, on the low end, eight to 9% is, is pretty good. Um, on the high end, if, if somebody's saying it's 15 to 20%, I'm going to look at the numbers. I'm, I'm going to be maybe somewhat skeptical on the ability to deliver on that, but that's kind of a sweet spot. You know, somebody in the eight to 14 range is is probably what they could expect with a good syndicator who knows who knows their numbers and knows the business got it that's great i don't want to make it into just like a multifamily real estate kind yeah. of discussion but i think there is some like threshold um in terms of the person's financial situation in order to get into these syndication deals right yep. can you yep. talk about that a little bit yeah, some of these deals are accredited. So you need to be an accredited investor to get in, which would mean a uh, million dollars in net worth, not including the equity in your home or a $200,000 annual income. Um, and I think it's 300,000 for a couple if you're filing jointly. But um, the there are other options. So true syndication is where you might buy into a property like this 350 unit apartment complex I mentioned. Then there are other options out there if you're not accredited um, and you might be called sophisticated, non-accredited, right? If you're sophisticated, non-accredited, there are other deals out there that you could get in for 5,000, 10,000, right? So there's still a number that you're going to have to to leap over to get there. Um, but these are more funds where you're not necessarily in a property. You might be in a fund that's buying a number of properties or uh, they're they're invested in multiple properties at the least um 
So this is where I encourage folks who are just getting started in real estate, maybe don't want to buy themselves, but want to participate. That would be a good way to do that. Yeah. Maybe going back a little bit. So what is your definition of financial freedom? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, it's funny because I'm asked this question a lot, financial freedom and sometimes wealth. And I have a very different definition for both because wealthy, for me, wealth is a measure of time. And wealth is basically, if your current income stopped tomorrow, how long could you live your current lifestyle? And for most people, you know, it's Friday today when we're recording this, they'd be like, well, Sunday at three, I can probably last till about then, you know? And so wealth, wealth for me is a measure of time. Financial freedom for me is defined as having enough passive income sources that supersede your monthly expenses. Because as soon as you exceed what you spend every month in passive income, technically you are financially free. You don't have to work anymore for the money. The money is, is working for you. Um, and I think this is the challenge. This is why shows like yours are so valuable is that a lot of people in a W-2 job, they may be thinking about their investments, you know, their 401k, their Roth IRA, I got to put more money in the market but they may not be thinking about their active to passive income ratio, which is, well, how many hours a week are you working to make money? And how many uh, dollars are flowing in your bank account every month that you don't have to work for? And that's, that's the number that we tend to focus on more is how do we create more and more of that passive income? Through the shred method, one of our goals is to decrease our expenses at the same time. So not necessarily living on beans and rice, like I like steak and wine dinners, um, it's more about minimizing the expenses that you have that are in your control so that you can live the life that you truly want to live. Yeah. So I now see the wisdom in the shred method, right? Not only it's shredding down your mortgage, but also shredding down your expenses. So That's right. That's exactly right. <laughs> it's, um, mm -hmm. and I'll share with you quickly one, one of the ways to do that, you know, for anyone that's, that's thinking, but I don't want to pay off my mortgage. I mentioned that my wife and I had paid off our mortgage in three and a half years. And then as soon as we did, rates dipped. And, you know, of course we were looking at two, seven, five and three and an eighth kind of rates. So we leveraged, uh, we pulled $200,000 out in a cash out refi and put that into a syndication. And that was making 9%, right? So $18,000 a year was coming in on that, that amount of money. And our payment was around eight or $900. Uh, a month on that amount. And so we shredded it. We went after it using the shred method. And within about a year and a half, it was down to $82,000. And this is where we used a unique strategy. We, we recasted the mortgage. Are you familiar with recasting? No. Can you explain that? So recasting is different than refinancing, where if you refinanced, you would actually be starting the loan over again at year 30, right? Mm -hmm. And instead, recasting says, okay, you started with 200, you now owe 82 and you're in year 28 of the mortgage. We just recast the 82,000 over 28 years and it made our payment $390 a month. Nice. So we live in a 5,200 square foot home, five bedrooms, four baths um, for $390 a month minus, yeah, we pay taxes and insurance separately. That's awesome. But at 390, like, you know, that I could have a part-time job at Starbucks and or wherever, right? 
mm-hmm. flipping burgers or wherever and make that amount of money to live here. So my goal was to always decrease the the amount that it costs to live, thereby freeing up the, the, the discretionary income that I have every month to then deploy where it makes the most sense. Yeah. Yeah. So this really kind of brings us to maybe the next topic, which is the FIRE movement, financial yeah. independence, retire early. Yeah. So can you talk about your view of the FIRE um, movement? I think that I was part of the FIRE movement before I even knew it, candidly, okay. um, because it wasn't really a thing when I started doing what I was doing. And then when it, when it, you know, when Mr. Money Mustache kind of pioneered the whole FIRE movement, I, um, I was like, oh yeah, we've been doing that for a while. I love the idea. I love the idea of living on less than you make for sure and extremely less if you can make it happen. When my wife and I got married, you know, we were living on 90% of what we made and 10% we were putting away. And then we started challenging what if we were living on 70? What if we were living on 50? What if we could live on 30%? And it, it was predicated on two things increasing your income, playing good offense, and decreasing expenses, playing good defense. Um, I think what what I'm challenged by, Andy, on fire is retire early because I don't know that I'll ever retire. And so I heard a speaker say she liked the idea of FINE, Mm F-I-N-E, financial independence next endeavor. Mm -hmm. So the whole idea of of retiring is just like, well, what's the next thing you're going to do? And I love that idea. Um, But I think all of us could benefit from just focusing on how do we build our passive income streams to supersede our expenses and then decide what do you want to go do with your life? You know, what, what lights you up? What gives you purpose? That's what we should all be doing. Yeah, no, I haven't heard of fine, but that's, that's great. That's a really good alternative. Cause I feel like people who achieve fire, usually they're pretty competent, ambitious, you know, it's kind of boring after you retire, right? You can only lie on the beach for so long and then what's next, right? Right, right. Um, So, but can you talk about how people can minimize their expenses and increase the income as you were talking about, you know, your journey? Well, obviously the the recasting your mortgage is a pretty profound idea on how to do that. Um, One of the things that we do through Shred is we look at someone's expenses and if they've got a car loan student loan credit card mortgage or you know rent or lease payment we're looking at all those and saying okay well which of these are going to be the easiest to get rid of and quite often it boils down to like credit cards and car loans are very easy um using the shred method and we kind of lever the the snowball uh, debt reduction model but we're looking at eliminating the lowest balance but highest payment debt first. So if we have a low balance, but a higher payment, as an example, uh, just yesterday I was with a client and he said, well, we bought a, I think it was a mattress and it was like, you know, a thousand dollar mattress that he financed. I don't know why we do, we, I do know why we do this. Cause we're, we're, it's ingrained in us to just go, oh, well, I can afford that monthly payment and I'll just finance it. Cause it's at 0% or whatever. But I said, this is costing you $206 a month and there's only $800 left. Let's just take care of it right away. And, you know, for him, he was like, oh, I didn't even think that that it was the extra cash flow that it would create that's going to make the biggest difference. So these are just some of the ways, Andy, we, we look at all of the debts and start to minimize what those monthly payments are. 
by either knocking them out completely or figuring out how we change the payment, uh, which may involve recasting or something like that. Um, it requires one thing, and that's being really intentional about how you're spending your money every single month. So we, we help people with that through the shred method, just coaching and helping them clear up expenses that don't need to be there. Got it, got it. And that recasting that you keep mentioning, is it possible to do with any bank or like how do you do the recasting? Yeah, it's a good question. Not all banks will offer it, but if you are if you're willing to reach out to a bank and say, I'd like to recast this mortgage, mm -hmm. probably eight times out of 10, they're going to do it. Okay. Um, to put it in the arena for everyone, the way this used to be used was in loss mitigation. It was for a bank to not lose a property to foreclosure. Mm -hmm. So if you had missed out on a number of payments, they would say, well, we'll just recast your mortgage with the new amount that you owe. Your payment's going to go up a little bit, but you don't owe us this big lump sum. So we're using it in reverse. We're going to blast away a ton of the mortgage and then say, okay, we now we owe so, so much less. We want to recast it. Um, the key to this is most lenders will only do this once, maybe twice in the life of a loan. Oh, that's really helpful. Yeah. yeah. And I personally actually use that because I, I have a situation that is very applicable. And then maybe let's talk about, there are so many experts out there that try mm. to teach people how to achieve financial freedom. So do you follow any of them? And what's your view on the quote unquote experts? Yeah, that's this this is an interesting question because there are so many out there that all have a different way of of achieving financial freedom, myself included. And I I have followed a, a number of them and I find ones that uh I I tend towards are the ones who are living the lifestyle that I most want. And so this would be the qualifier I think for your audience is if you look at the person's life and you go, yes, that looks interesting to me. I could see myself living that. Then consider following that person and their advice. Um, just know that if you're following two or three and trying to follow all of the advice, there will likely be conflicting advice. Um, so I've got friends in real estate that swear by just going long on leverage and having everything leveraged they possibly can. I'm not necessarily in that camp. Um, simply because uh, there was a concern for me that at some point one or two of those threads are pulled and the whole thing comes unraveled if they're not um if they're not liquid enough right if there's not enough on the sidelines to weather a storm then someone who's over leveraged can get into really serious trouble and so with ours it's really all about certainty it's about building a bigger life not a bigger lifestyle creating financial freedom through passive income streams, owning more of your income. Um, we love real estate. I love leveraging into real estate, but I really, really love taking advantage of people who are really good at what they do, like syndicators, sponsors, and just leveraging their skill set and knowing that I'm going to get a check and, you know, as a direct deposit every month. Um, so my, my, general con my general theory or statement around gurus is be careful who you're following and know exactly who they are and what kind of life they're living outside of what they espouse. Because um, I know there are some folks out there who will say one thing and then they've made all their money in publishing as an example, but they're saying how you ought to make all your money in investing, yet they haven't. So I think those are, those are a little bit hard to believe for me. Yeah, very well said, yeah.
If you have a million dollars liquid today, what would you do with it? It sounds like real estate is definitely one of your top choices, but would you put everything in real estate if you have a lump sum money that you can spend? That's a great question. Uh, if I had a million dollars liquid today, where would I put it? Am I living the same lifestyle that I am right now? Yeah, I would assume. Yeah. So there, there is a syndicator that I follow that um, for a million dollar investment, they have a, it was either a nine and a half or 10% return paid quarterly. And then uh, they would be out of the deal in four to five years. So in four to five years, you could, you could turn a million into like 2.1. Wow. Um, that would probably be where I would go. If somebody said, you have an hour to decide where to put this money, go do it. Right. That's what I would do. I think the deeper question in that would be, I'd probably look at splitting it up into two or three chunks and figure out where to put that money. Um, cause it's all based on a spreadsheet, right? The math has to show me where the greatest return is. Um, but, but real estate would be a huge chunk of it. No question. Yeah. No, that's that sounds like a really good deal. Yeah, I probably would do the same because if you're saying it's nine, 10 percent return, so that's about one hundred thousand dollars a year, just pure cash flow. I mean, yeah. people can live off of one hundred thousand and then by the end you get a big chunk back. Yeah, that sounds great. Yeah. Um, do you invest in other investments, you know, stocks, mutual funds? Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, I'm probably a third, a third, a third for the most part, a third of our net worth is in the market. Um, a third is in real estate or real estate syndication plays. And then um, there's maybe a third, close to a third in alternatives. And so that, that includes a little bit of gold and silver. Um, I actually invested a fair amount in masterworks.io, which is, if you're, are you familiar with that? I heard about that. That's like buying like little piece of a like artwork, right? Something yeah, like yeah, yeah. So fine art. I have a Jean Michel Basquiat. Um, I, I, you know, I'll probably never see it in person. I'm sure it's in cold storage somewhere. Mm -hmm. um, but it's kind of cool to know that I own a piece of a of a piece of artwork that the artist died in his 20s, late 20s, I believe, and he's one of the most well respected African American artists. That has ever lived mm -hmm. so you know some of those kinds of investments are intriguing to me because um i don't know what it'll do return wise but i know it's not going down and uh, for me that's a bit of a hedge because i like the market i like real estate but both can go down over time uh so i'm, I'm looking for other opportunities that i can put money in that that um maybe a hedge against you know they're they're negatively correlated with what the market is doing yeah. Um, and I would include crypto in that bucket. I'm I'm fairly long in crypto too. So am I right to assume that you're kind of a Robert Kiyosaki kind of guy? Yes, he is who I cut my teeth on when I first got started. Rich Dad Poor Dad was the very first first financial book I read, mm -hmm. and then I read uh, the Cash Flow Quadrant, which blew my mind. Yep. Um, so yes, I'm a big follower yeah. of. Yeah, and net worth is an opinion, cash flow is a fact. The reason why I figured that out was because in talking about your investments, it really reminded me of what he talks about, the one-third, 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 yeah. fine art, real estate, and gold. Either he or someone he is really close with studied how you know the wealthy people were able to preserve their wealth over yeah. generations, like not just you know three generations, but many, many generations. Yeah. And they would divide their wealth that way because even in very catastrophic events, 
people were able to preserve these three types of assets. Yes. Unlike, you know, businesses or other type of assets. So yeah, so great. So you actually implemented. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I, you know what? I never put two and two together on that, particularly on artwork, because mm -hmm. that that investment for me was like, oh, this looks intriguing. And I had a I had a dividend or a distribution come from a company. I was like, OK, well, I'll put it in this and see what happens. Um, but I do love that idea. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Artwork, gold and real estate. Yeah. Yeah. And Bitcoin is kind of along the line of digital gold. Right. And I think he's long in Bitcoin as well. So yep. makes sense. All right. So, I mean, this is all great, but how can a normal, ordinary person employ this method and do what you were able to do? Yeah. Well, I think that's the magic of what we do is that <clears throat> this isn't necessarily just for the, the affluent or, or upper middle class or anything like that. The, the key is, as I mentioned before, Andy, that you have to have more money at the end of your month. So for the you know ordinary person who's like, okay, how do I do this? I want you to make sure that you've got some amount of capital after you pay all your bills every month. And I, there's a theory that I have that idle money is dangerous money. So if you have money sitting in savings or checking, the logic for most people is, well, yeah, let's go out to eat. There's still $400 in the account, right? And then it just goes away little by little. And so the the power of shred is really giving all the dollars a place to go where it's not idle because the idle money creates inefficiencies and the inefficiencies cost you a lot. So for an ordinary person, here's the steps. Number one, you need a, a vehicle, an account where your income goes in. Right now it's your checking account, but that's a very inefficient tool. So what we recommend is you put it either in a line of credit, like a HELOC, or you can create a special shred account, which is essentially could be a high yield savings account, but it's it's a, it's an amount of money that you haven't touched in a while. So for most folks, it needs to be five to 10 grand. It should be about one and a half times what your net take-home pay is. So if you make five grand a month, roughly 7,500 needs to be sitting in that side account that you're using for shred. Or you could have a line of credit for seven to 10,000. And then as your income flows in, you're going to pay all your expenses out of that mortgage, car loan, credit card, living expenses. And then our software will tell you based on the numbers you plug in, how much of the extra remaining on the line of credit or in the shred account goes to blast away debts. And we're using, again, we're using the snowball or avalanche method, but we're doing it kind of on steroids. And we're going to like literally knock those debts out where you have more and more and more discretionary income uh, with every debt that you pay off. And the end result is we end up going after the mortgage eventually to create enough equity to then get into these real estate deals. So here's what I would say high level handy is that most of your listeners, no matter, no matter their income range, so long as there's money left over, they're 18 to 24 months away from fully participating in this deal in, in a in a 10 year freedom plan and at that point they are two years in already so you can get started today and know that a decade from now you'll be looking back going i'm so glad past me did what they did yeah if i understand this correctly basically you just want to deploy the let's say free cash to pay off the debt as soon as possible so then you don't have to have the cash sitting idle not doing anything but then you find a way like HELOC to pay for expenses. Is that That's right? That's right. And it is right. 
And and I would add to that that the HELOC is pretty central to what we do, or a, or a line of credit it could be a PLOC or a BLOC. Mm-hmm. But the line of credit is really essential because it is the liquidity vehicle. Mm-hmm. So the problem with your mortgage is that the mortgage is a one-way street. Money goes in, money doesn't come back out again. Mm-hmm. The only way, there are only two ways to get money out of your mortgage. Do you know what they are? HELOC and I don't know the other one. <laughs> well, that would be true. HELOC would be one. That would be more like a two-way street. But the only way to get money out of your home, if you, all you have is a mortgage, is to either sell your home oh, or do yeah. a cash out cash out refi. Yeah. Both, you know, selling it is pretty final and cash out refi is going to cost you a significant amount. <clears throat> the HELOC is a two-way street because money goes in and money comes out. Money goes in, money comes out. It's, it's literally a two-way street. And it creates the liquidity tool that when someone presents this opportunity to buy a gold coin or $5,000 in a syndication or whatever it may be, you can go, well, I don't really have it, but I do have access to it over here. So I'm just going to write that out of my, my line of credit and know that because your income is cycling through, you're really only borrowing that amount of money for a very short amount of time, right? So in effect, we're, we're creating a little bit at a high level here, not to, uh, go into like the 202 level stuff, but we're creating interest rate arbitrage. Mm-hmm. We're borrowing an amount of money in short bursts at a certain interest rate and leveraging it against long-term amortized debt at another interest rate. Yeah. And the end result is we save typically tens and sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars in the process. Yeah. But just to maybe challenge a little bit, on HELOCs, just another debt vehicle? And then you hear people just get in trouble when they have yeah. much leverage. Yeah. And it is, it is a debt vehicle. It has to be used cautiously. <clears throat> when interest rates were 1.9% on HELOCs, we saw a lot of people going long on the HELOC. They would, they might put a hundred thousand dollars against it. And some cases put that against their mortgage. And, and you know, and, and then you would say, well, aren't you just trading one debt for another? The answer is yes, sort of you are. Um, the key to that working is they need to have enough income and particularly enough discretionary income that it's bringing that that HELOC balance down month after month after month. To, in today's interest rate environment, we will never really go that long on the line of credit. Um, again, it's dependent on income and, and discretionary income. But my wife and I, we have $150,000 available to us on a line of credit at all times. In this interest rate environment, it'll never go more than twenty or thirty thousand at a time, mm-hmm. and and every month, you know, it's being paid down as we go. So as it gets close to maybe ten or five thousand, we'll go deploy another twenty five thousand somewhere. Um, but we are, in the grand scheme of things, we're paying it down month after month after month because there's more discretionary income. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, that makes yep. sense. And I think I want to go back to one of the concepts you mentioned earlier, which is infinite banking. It sounds like it's another vehicle where you can do that rate arbitrage. Can yep. you talk about that too, infinite banking? Yeah, this is a this is a fun topic to talk about because I think there's a lot of misconceptions around infinite banking, and um, you know people will say, "Oh, it's not worth it," and it's it's not a good investment. That's what I'll hear quite often. And what people need to understand is that infinite banking is a process. It's not a product. So the process of infinite banking is you're filling a bucket of money, right? And it just so happens that that bucket is a cash value whole life policy. 
And what you're doing in filling that bucket is you're actually overfunding it. So you're paying more than the pre what the premium would normally be just for insurance to create cash in the policy itself. Um, nine times out of 10, these policies are built over a period of four or five years. Some people will do it in one lump sum. You know, they'll put, uh, this, is a, this is an extreme case, but you can put a million dollars in a whole life policy and have that in cash value in there. And then the advantage of this from an infinite banking standpoint is that bank of money, you have the ability to borrow from whenever you like up to about 90% of whatever the value of that policy actually is or the, the cash in that policy. So Handy, if you had a property you were interested in putting a down payment on and you needed 50 grand, you could go to your infinite banking policy and borrow it out of there. And the benefit is you get to decide when it's paid back, how it's paid back, and in fact, if it's paid back, meaning that you could borrow money out of there and never put it back in again. It will be charging you interest over time, um, but you really get to decide you know, how that money is used. And I think that's the, the greatest uh, advantage to those policies is I can leverage right now close to $200,000 in policies which means fundamentally I could go buy a $200,000 home for cash and not have a payment against my policy debt at all for any length of time if I didn't want it. Um, but at some point I could refinance that house and put the money back in that policy, or I could uh, pay a monthly payment back to the policy, almost like it's a loan to myself. So it's just very, very flexible. And I think that's the power of it. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely sounds very helpful. It's still a bit kind of complicated for me, but I think my high level understanding is that you're literally just kind of creating multiple sources of income and kind of with the same base. And then you just have flexibility of determining how to allocate the, the capital. You're exactly right. The metaphor I like to use is, have you ever, have you ever been to a water park? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Did they did it have that giant bucket that fills up with water yeah. and then dumps on the kids? Mm -hmm. So that's what we're doing in this strategy is we're filling that bucket up. And and again, this is kind of the the misconception on these policies. People will fill them, they'll fund them. And then they go, "Well, I didn't make any money on my policy." And you you will make a little bit on the policy itself because there are dividends and distributions that happen on policies. But the way the money is made in an infinite banking policy is that bucket has to be dumped into something that's generating revenue. Mm -hmm. And so where we dump those is we generally will dump them into a syndication or we'll dump it into a masterworks IO deal and know that we're just gonna hold it for a while, but the income that comes off of that syndication as an example is going to refill the bucket. Mm -hmm. And as soon as the bucket fills up again, then we dump it again. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so our goal just at a high level for um, to continue the bucket analogy is how many buckets do you have filling and dumping at any given point in time? And the more you have typically, then the more passive income you're creating and the more freedom then that you'll get to experience. Yeah. Gotcha. So I think kind of a general theme is that you really should put your money to work, right? I think that's a phrase that uh, Robert Kiyosaki uses a lot. So um, I guess in other words, you could say that you should make your income more efficient. And can you talk about what that really means? 
I think income efficiency is um, really understanding. I believe I mentioned it earlier that the two greatest expenses we have are taxes and the interest expense on debt. Mm -hmm. And so um, there was a client of ours that came to the table, very excited about a promotion he was getting. He was going to make $120,000 a year. And we were like, wow, that's awesome, dude. Congratulations. And he said, but my, my challenge is I feel like I make good money. I just don't know where it all goes. And so we started digging into his numbers and, you know, based on a student loan outstanding, a car loan, a mortgage, um, he had a little bit of consumer debt and um, we added all up all the payments. He was sending out of 120,000 uh, in gross income, about $36,000 a year was going out the door in interest. Wow. Not, not just in payments, but in interest. So, you know, let's take 120 grand and let's light 36,000 on fire right away. And in addition to 120, um, he'd probably also have about 20%, maybe 30% even in taxes. So that's another 36,000. So 72,000 off of 120 means that this person is living on, my math is right, 48,000, mm -hmm. not 120. 48 is what you actually have, four grand a month to live on. So this is where, when we talk about income efficiency, income efficiency means that how much of the money that you're making is actually yours to keep. Because it should be doing four things, your income. It should pay your expenses. Most people, it does that. It should eliminate debt. Most people, it doesn't really do that. They think they're doing it, but they're really not. They're just paying interest to the bank. It should build wealth meaning you should be investing in assets and you should be able to do good and or have fun with it, right? And most people do two of those. They pay their expenses and they have fun. And then they walk around going, how come I don't have any money left? Right? How come my wealth isn't more than it is right now? And the reason is because they never, they never uh, eliminated debt. They didn't really build wealth. They missed the two key components of creating income efficiency. Very well said. What is a book recommendation that you have to either invest smartly or um, self-improvement? This is going to be one that you probably have never heard before. Because um, I, I, whenever I'm asked this question and I give uh, the book, you know, people will say, I've never, never, ever heard of it. There's a book called A Happy Pocket Full of Money. And it's written by a guy named David Cameron Jacondi. And, um, and I want to say he was from Kenya. Uh, but the book is, it's not about money so much handy as, as it is about quantum physics. Wow. And in the book, he describes the first two chapters are a, a bit challenging to get through because he's really describing at a high level what quantum physics is. Um, and then he gets into really the heart of it. And it's essentially that we are constantly creating our own reality. And so in reading this book, and I encourage your listeners to read it, what I hope you get out of it. Um, at least what I got out of it is that whatever I'm creating in my mind, I can create in real life. So if someone says, I want to make a million dollars a year or a month, create the reality and then figure out how to get there. But if you say, oh, there's no way you can make a million dollars a month, or there's no way I could make a million dollars a month, then it's true. You won't because you'll just stop. You'll stop thinking about it. You won't create that reality. So if you find yourself in that position where maybe you know, bills are high, expenses are high, you want your income to be higher, but it's not there yet, imagine creating your mind what that looks like to have massive abundance, to create massive wealth, uh, to own tons of real estate, 100 doors, 
right? Minimum. And then work backwards from that to, to create that reality in your current world. Um, it's the idea that when we doubt ourselves, we, we literally limit our own abilities. So that book is the one I would recommend first and foremost. Yeah, that sounds great. Yeah, definitely. We'll check that out. I haven't heard of it before, but it sounds very intriguing. So my last question for you is where can people find more about you? I think all you kind of described was really great, but if people want to have a more in-depth understanding of those things, where can people yeah. find more about those? The easiest place to go is theshredmethod.com. And on that site, we have a, a masterclass that's evergreen. You can go and watch it anytime. So if what I've said is intriguing you at all, um, go spend the, I think it's a 25 minute video, but if you play it at 1.3 speed, uh, you can get through it in about 16 minutes or so. Okay. Um, great content. There's tons of free information on the site, lots of resources. And then if you want to know more about me, you can go to adamcarroll.info, uh, two R's, two L's, adamcarroll.info. And my TED talk is there. There's a documentary on student loan that I did years ago that's there. Um, and then information about my speaking topics. But um, I welcome anyone to come check it out and, and reach out to me. Uh, you can find me on socials too. Great. Well, thank you so much, Adam, for coming on the show. I really learned a lot and um, really appreciate your time. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Andy. Oh,